Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, Leon Cooperman joins us. He's with Omega, their family office, the chairman, the CEO. What he really is is a kid out of Hunter College who got a job at Xerox a million years ago and stumbled through Columbia into Goldman Sachs, where he uh, found acclaim, fame, and fortune. He was a regular in institutional investors' uh, award ceremonies for years and years and years. Mr. Cooperman joins us this morning. Leon, why is this short squeeze different than the 42 others you've known since you joined Goldman Sachs? Well, the market is very different because things are happening much more quickly. Uh, there's just no stabilizers. When I came to Wall Street 55 years ago, the brokers firms traded stock for 25 to 50 cents a share. The Volcker rule didn't exist. They had an incentive to stabilize and go against the trend. That doesn't exist anymore. Uh, you know, 80% of the volume used to be in the New York Stock Exchange. 80% of the volume is off board. The specialists don't play a role. And then for some unexplained reason, uh, the SEC eliminated the uptick rule in 2007 was something right. that functioned very well since okay. 1938. Leon, I don't want to interrupt, but that's right where I wanted to go. Okay, Arthur Levitt and others, full disclosure, Mr. Levitt's a Bloomberg board member. Arthur Levitt and others took us from quarter point responsibility down to the rush of the decimalization, and then we had the uptick rule uh, changed. Explain why the uptick rule was so important. Well, you had a stability to the market. You needed an uptick. You just could not. I think the elimination of the uptick rule gave rise to these high-frequency, you know, algorithmic traders. And they know nothing about value. They know everything about price. So they basically, they exacerbate the trend. When the market's going up, they accelerate the up move. When it's going down, they accelerate the down move. And I think the SEC should be, they've been very mindful of the cost of trading but they've not looked at the lowering of the cost of trading, what impact has had on the market. And I think that we should try to slow things down a little yep. bit and reinstate the uptick rule. Charles Cantor of Newberger Berman was on the other day and made very clear his break is a responsible short interest. Leon Cooperman is one path here to restrict the size of the short interest to not only protect investors, but just, just to put a break on all that high-speed market. No, I would say that uh, we should just follow the rules that exist. I mean, if you short something, you have to secure a borrow. Okay, if you if you if you can't have a borrow, you shouldn't be short. So, to the extent that somebody's short more than one hundred percent of the market cap of a company, it's because the rules have not been followed. Right, Leon, was there anything to admire from the events of several weeks ago? Anything to admire? Uh, well, the system has survived, but you know, no, I, I would say. <clears throat> It's not, look, the Wall Street ethics has been in a decline for quite some time. Many, many years ago, I confronted the then head of the New York Stock Exchange. I asked him why they allowed these algorithmic guys to co-locate their computers next to the New York Stock Exchange to give them a split-second advance over the public. It just doesn't seem to be right. And his response was, well, if we don't do it, somebody else will. Okay, The sale of order flow uh, raises questions in terms of whether the public's orders are being abused. Well, I, I think that there, there's a lot of things the SEC could be doing. And the last thing we need is Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or AOC getting involved in setting policy. 
the, you know, the, 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 the rules and the regulations exist, they're in place, just follow them. Well, as you know, Leon, a lot of people have characterized this as the wealthy versus the poor, David versus Goliath. How unhelpful do you think that is right now? I, I think that's all baloney. You know, uh, this persistent attack of the wealthy. I mean, uh, Melvin lost a lot of money. I suspect that uh, 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 he's a very wealthy guy, uh, uh, the fellow that runs Melvin Capital. So, so uh, I, I don't think it's a battle against the wealthy and the poor. I think, you know, America is a country that became great because poor people want to aspire to become wealthy, not because they uh, basically uh, uh, had a negative view of the wealthy. And, uh, you know, how do you become wealthy in America? You become wealthy in America because you develop a product or service that somebody needs and you get richly rewarded. And the people who had to have their heads screwed on correctly then share that success with others less fortunate. Is the world better off or worse off because of Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and uh, a host of other people. You know, I've said on uh, your program or other programs, Ken Lindon is one of the finest human beings I've ever met. Okay, well, Ken Steak Bertie uh, Marcus, uh, uh, you know, I think he raised him something like uh, 50 families put up $2 million each. They raised $10 million. And yeah, I don't know, the enterprise value today is probably $275 billion. They have several thousand employees and a millionaires. Bertie and Ken have given back billions of dollars to society. Uh, that's the American dream. Well, how does the Fed factor into the American dream? Because the American dream increasingly has been people with assets have continued to see their wealth grow dramatically under the Fed's regime versus those who don't have assets, which have missed out. Look, this goes back. We have had some, uh, you know, I'm not a big bull in the market presently. I understand exactly what's going on, basically. Uh, But we've had the government performing some type of, providing some type of life support to the economy and the market since 2008. 2008, uh, Mr. Bernanke figured out the economy was going down the toilet. He had to reverse that. He said the best way to reverse that is to create wealth, you know, the so-called Pagu effect, 5% of wealth changes work its way to consumption. And the best way to get wealth up is to get the stock market up. The trouble with it is 80% of the stocks were owned by 20% of the people. Uh, not that they did the wrong thing, they did the right thing, okay? And then they spent the next 10 years taking away the wealth that was created from the wealthy by creating an environment where there's no return on savings. So if you led a prudent life in 2008 and you didn't get caught in a big way and you had savings, if you tax adjust and inflation adjust, your return on savings is negative, okay? And now they want to get another bite of the apple. We, we, we are following, it's very clear what's going on in, in, in the country right now. Uh, unemployment pre-COVID was like 5.7 million people unemployed. That ballooned to over 23 million. Yeah. That's now down to about a bit over 10 million. And they're conducting monetary and fiscal policy, not saying it's wrong, but there's a price to be paid for this long term. They're conducting policy with the idea of getting the unemployment back to where it was pre-COVID. Okay, and yeah. that's everything they're doing. So just look at the world. We've injected $1 trillion more in stimulus in the way of transfer payments to the economy and income that has been lost. Plus, we're talking about another trillion nine. Okay, we took 245 years for this country to go from zero national debt to 21 or 22 trillion. That's going up three trillion dollars a year. That's not a sustainable situation. It's a price we paid for that. Leon, what is the consequence? Is it runaway inflation? Is it markets that are going to get overheated and blow up? I don't know the answer. It could be inflation or deflation. I just know it's not going to be a good end. And I, I, I don't know when it ends, but it's not going to be a good end to the game. 
It's not going to be a good end. Just think of it this way. If you speak to 100 economists, and Mr. Keene is a damn good economist of his own, you speak to 100 economists today, and you ask them, what is the trend real growth in the economy? Trend real growth. They right. were saying the economy's potential to grow in real terms about 2%. Right. One half percent productivity, 50 basis points from labor force growth, that's 2%. Right. And another 2% for inflation, that's 4% nominal GDP growth. Okay, this year the economy is expected to grow 6%. It's growing three in real terms. It's growing a three times trend, yet we have zero interest rates. Doesn't make any sense. It's being the policy, and I, I, I resent Mr. Powell in one respect. Let him right. okay. call for what it is. Leon, look, I want, Leon, I want to get back, just because we're running out of time, I want to get back to what we're talking about here. Michael Lewis wrote a book about the Flash Boys. We've got to do something to get us away from the cult of high-speed trading. What is your policy prescription for Mr. Gensler to get us somewhere back to where value is worshipped like price? Pull out of the files a letter I sent to Jay Clinton in December 2018 recommending reinstating the uptick rule. That will slow the process down. I see no downside risk to doing that, and it, can, it would basically add some stability to the system. There are no stabilizers, up or down, and that's not a good thing for the market. Who is lobbying for those people? I mean, who is representing them against people of the high-speed industry, and I'm going to say including Mr. Griffin? I, I honestly don't know. You know, I, I'm really an old-fashioned investor. I buy stocks one at a time. I'm a value guy. I buy things. What's your single down. best buy right now? Farrell's got to make some money. What's your single best buy? It's a little complicated, but my single best idea, which should be my largest position, right, is a company called uh, Legato. Legato owns somewhere between 35 and 40 megahertz of spectrum, 5G spectrum which uh, got caught up in some controversy because the Department of Defense very bogusly objected to their spectrum use because they said interfere with DOD needs. Complete baloney. The FCC did a fabulous job under Chairman Pai, studied this for over five years, and by a five to zero bipartisan vote, approved the spectrum. John okay. Legato, L-U-G-A-T-O, it's Italian. Leon, thank you. We've got to leave it there. Leon Cooperman there, Amiga Family <laughs> Office right. Chairman and CEO. Leon, good to catch up. Good to see Leon, you again. Thank, thank you. you. It would be nice, John, to speak to someone truly expert in the span of commodities. Young Gartman, ages ago, John Farrell, actually was in the pits enjoying losing money. Well, let's talk to Dennis now. Not about losing money, maybe even making it. Dennis Gartman, chairman <laughs> of the University of Akron's Endowment Committee. Dennis, great to catch up with you, sir. You've heard the same conversation we've heard. Let's contribute to it. A commodity super cycle. Your thoughts now, Dennis? I think there's something going on that is very, very serious in the commodity markets. Take a look at almost any commodity that you want to look at. Look at tin, it's up dramatically. Look at copper, it's up dramatically. Look at co co cotton, it's up dramatically. Look at wheat, corn, soybeans, up dramatically. Look at livestock prices, up dramatically. Look at the cost of shipping goods, up dramatically. There's something more going on than just a, a mere bounce from the lows. I think that the 
bear market that had existed for a more than a decade has ended. I think a bull market that will probably last for a long period of time has begun. The monetary authorities around the world are sponsoring this as they become extremely expansionary. This is starting and it's not mm -hmm. going to go away anytime soon. Dennis, I got to rip up the script. You are absolutely definitive in the way that you stop losing money in commodities, which is a habit. It's sort of like GameStop, to be <laughs> honest. What is your best practice for our listeners and viewers to not lose money investing in commodities? What's the single best Gartman tip? Add to winning trades and avoid doing and, and avoid adding to losing trades. Whatever you do, an old rule of mine, and it's a very good rule, do more of that which is working and less of that which is not. If something is going from the lower left to the upper right and it's been working for you, add to it. If something's been going from the lower left to the upper right and you're short of it, stop doing that. So that's the simplest methodology. It's the best methodology. It's good in life and it's good in trading. Do more of that which is working and less of that which is not. Evidently, and don't triple, over leverage. Yeah, I was about to say, evidently, triple lever cash is uh, working really well for a Tom Keen. There raises a question, though, this idea of the goods <laughs> inflation, this idea of commodities gaining at a time when people can't go out and have experiences in the same way because of the pandemic. And there's been a shift from spending in services to spending on goods. Is that going to last in enough of a way to keep this super cycle going, as people are predicting? Or could this be skewing some of what we're seeing currently, Dennis? As long as the monetary authorities continue to be expansionary, and it's not just the Fed that is that way, it's the Bank of Canada, it's the Bank of England, it's the ECB, it's the People's Bank of China, it's the, people, it's the Reserve Bank of Russia, the Reserve Banks of Australia and New Zealand, all of them are all expansionary, all of them are expanding reserves at a, at a pace far past any reasonable expectation of GDP and population growth. So it is inflationary around the world, and this is not going to go away anytime soon, as I've said many times before, and I'll continue to say in the future. This is something sponsored by the central banks, and it's not going to stop. And I just want to mention, folks, what Mr. Gartman just mentioned there on trading strategy is called an anti-Martingale strategy. This is from the Bibles of years ago when people used to lose money, maybe with a more informed view. Dennis Gartman, John Farrow demands I go to the real yield. You know the focus is on Treasury, the money yeah. they have at the Fed. It's going to flood the system. Do we go to negative interest rates and money market funds? And do we go to, a, I'll call it a volatile real yield? I think what's going to happen or what has been happening and what's going to continue to happen is the yield curve is going to continue to widen the the back end of the curve which is the which is the area that the Fed has very little control over is going to continue to see higher and higher interest rates the long bond went above 2% just this past week. It's going to go to 3 or 4% over the course of the next several years. But the Fed is going to continue to keep the overnight Fed funds rate. They've told us this. I believe them. They're going to keep the overnight Fed funds rate at or near zero. Can they take it to negative numbers? It's possible. I doubt it. But the important thing is to notice that the spread between the overnight Fed funds rate and the long end of the curve is going to continue to widen. This will help the banking system more than anybody else. But it's this is something that's predicated upon inflation continuing for a long period of time. So the Fed's not going to tighten monetary policy at the short end, but the market itself is tightening monetary policy at the long end, and that's what people have to get have to understand. And they've been plugging that into the financial sector. The banks have been flying. Dennis, it's great to catch yep. up, sir. Dennis Garman, chairman of the University of Akron's <laughs> Endowment Fund. James Bianco with us, Bianco Research, uh, this morning. Jim Bianco, real simple, does the carnage of the Midwest deep freeze? Does that adjust national economics? 
you know, you'd normally think it would, but given that we're already in the mode of working from home, the impact is far less than it would have been in a pre-pandemic era. So a lot of people like me are at home working, and while it's snowing outside as I talk to you, not a whole lot is going to change with my work habits just because of the pandemic. Jim, many people missed the recovery last year and how quickly, more specifically, how quickly the U.S. would recover. Are we doing that all over again? Uh, as far as missing it, no, because I think a lot of people are expecting a booming recovery. If there's anything, we might be missing the return of inflation. Uh, I've heard that you know Wall Street has been upping their forecasts for real GDP growth. And I would just put a little finer tune on that and say, maybe it turns out to be nominal GDP growth that's going to go up and that more of that uh, component is going to be inflation and a little less of that component is going to be real growth. But I don't think that there's a lot of people that are looking for the economy to turn south anytime soon unless something comes along to break it. Markets are picking up on that. It feels like economists are behind the curve, though on this, Jim. You speak to many market participants and economists separately. It just feels like the economists haven't quite upgraded their forecasts yet in the same way this market has, particularly in the bond market. Yeah, I think what they're being influenced by is interest rates. They're heading higher, and I think they're going to continue to head higher, but it's been a gradual grind. And so when I talk about the potential of inflation coming, I understand there's a base effect, but then after that, and rates might continue to move higher on inflation, the answer or the question is, why aren't they going up now? You've got the Federal Reserve buying a trillion and a half dollars of bonds a year, and that's probably dampening the type of move we would have X them as well. But I do think it's there, and I think that they're just economists are starting to pick up on this idea that, as Dennis Gartman said in the last hour, the super cycle is turned, commodities are moving higher, and inflation looks like something that is coming back that we haven't seen in about 30 years. So it's also something that's very new for a lot of people. That's actually what I was going to say, that there's been a conditioning over the years that just because the Federal Reserve is incredibly involved in markets doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to get higher inflation. I am wondering, and not to harp on this, but good inflation versus bad inflation. You know, if, if the goods that you buy and everyone is buying more of them and no services or not as many services during the pandemic, and those goods are getting more expensive because of the increased demand, so the real inflation is going up faster than perhaps some of the headline gauges. Is that good? Do wages necessarily follow? What's your sense? Well, two things. On the goods inflation, <clears throat> you're not seeing it as much in the data, but Matt Iglesias brought up a good point on Twitter over the weekend. You're getting rationing. Go buy something at Home Depot or Lowe's, and it's it, the price is cheap, and you'll get it in April. You're, you know, So they're rationing out their supply as opposed to raising their prices. Well, that's a form of inflation. It's just not showing up in, in the data as well, too. As far as where we're going to go from here, I think, you know, when you talk about uh, bad inflation, the question is going to be once we reopen with all the stimulus and services start to move, because a lot of them are dormant right now because of the lockdown restrictions, are we going to see that start to move? And finally, you mentioned about wages. Uh, we have already been, you know, the, the vernacular I've been using, we've been mailing people money. We just got done mailing them $600. We're going to mail them $1,400. I understand why we're doing it. That's 20% of the American income right now is being sent to you via the government in the form of stimulus. And there's another big one coming. Don't need wage inflation. You have personal income inflation because the government is making up that difference. And that's going to lead to a big stimulus 
when things reopen later this year. And this is the big distinction that people are pointing to for why we're going to get inflation that's much faster than people are expecting. As economists become more uh, accepting of this idea, how high can yields go? Well, you know, the th that's the, that is the concern because we have a deeply negative real yield right now. If you were to get inflation back to the Fed says that they'll tolerate two and a half percent. OK, fine. Let's use that. And then people believe that inflation is, is something to stick with. We might have to move to positive yields. That could get you at least to two and a half percent on the 10 year note. I mean, over a long period of time, like the end of next year. And in this levered bond market, that kind of move would be very unsettling, uh, even though you might look at it from a long history and say it's still two and a half percent. It's a very low yield. But from the perspective of the way that bonds are traded and held, and especially financed through the repo market, that kind of move in yields will, will be a very difficult one for everybody to swallow. Jim, I want you to go back to your training and technical analysis. You are a CMT. How do you find the breaking of trend on the real yield? Uh, the real yield breaking of trend is going to be very difficult to find right now because it's it's been in a downtrend and it really hasn't turned very much. But what I have found in looking at those charts is when it does break, it tends to move rapidly. Yes, quickly. yes, yes. You, you know, so, you know, I heard John say, you know, it, you know, maybe there's a little bit of a turn here and that's an accurate description. And then there's a little bit more of a turn and then pow, it just goes. Okay, well, this and is that's really what people are most worried about when it comes to real yields. They won't be this gradual rise like you have with nominal yields they could move a lot faster. Yeah, what's important here, Jim, is red zone, green zone. So your experience here on 210 spread or real yield is when you go, boom, you go. Is boom right to a positive statistic? No, I don't think it'll be to a positive statistic right away because there's a long way to go. It's almost 100 basis points. But it will definitely break the downtrend that we've been in. And it'll also be upsetting, uh, uh, unsettling because remember, who's the biggest buyer of, of real yields is the Federal Reserve. They own 20 percent of that market right now and they're buying it you know, aggressively every day. And if that moves starts in the face of all that Fed buying, you start thinking, what's the private sector doing in that market selling aggressively? And that will be further unsettling for everybody. Jim, just final one. You're watching that hearing later. Yeah, I'm going to watch the hearing. Unfortunately, I think they're missing the point. It seems like it's going to be about uh, justifying short sale instead of some of the things that have gone on. It's going to be theater, but I don't know if it's going to have much substance. Jim, isn't that always the way? Good to see you, sir. Yep. Jim Bianco, Bianco Research Founder and President. Right now on what we will see today, Gregory Meeks joins us. He is the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He is also a member of the House Financial Services Committee. He's been on the watch since 1998. And for those of you truly nationwide and worldwide, you've never been more to his district as you go to JFK as he represents the 5th of New York, which is that traffic and the new construction, the infrastructure build through the 5th Construct Congressional uh, District. Congressman Meeks, thank you so much uh, for joining us. What do you hope to accomplish today? Take us away from the theatrics to the adultness of Maxine Waters. What's the job one today? Listening, trying to understand what in fact did take place, uh, trying to see what, if anything, that we should also uh, have dialogue and conversation with the SEC. 
Uh, it is basically the, you know, the name of the subcommittee that's in charge is investor protection. So as we've done in, under Maxine Waters' leadership previously, you know, we saw consumer protection when we had the hearing uh, uh, in regards to uh, Wells Fargo. Uh, and sometimes something comes out of it more. We get ideas and thoughts, and sometimes it doesn't. We want to make sure that the average everyday investor uh, is, uh, is protected. Uh, and I think that, you know, I know for me, you indicated I've been in Congress since 1998, and that is absolutely mm -hmm. one of the worst times of my life was in 2008 with the financial crises. And I do believe that we, you know, we could have and should have right. done something sooner. And that's what I hope that we're doing here. We're looking uh, and, you know, I'm a former prosecutor also. So we're looking to see uh, is there anything that we should be looking at or doing as members of Congress? Okay, you, Congressman, you're underselling yourself. You're a former narcotics prosecutor on one of the toughest beats in the country. This before you took over at the 5th District. Congressman, I want to get you on the same page as Leon Cooperman from the South Bronx, who we just spoke to. Leon says the rules are there. We're not affecting the rules. Why can't we get back to securities rules on the books that get us away from this high-speed insanity? Well, because of technology. We've got to keep up with it. And technology, social media, that makes things change. You can't leave, you know, I've learned that you can't go by some of the same rules that we had 10, 15, 20 years ago because things have changed and moved and advanced and such. So we've got to make sure that we're staying up to date uh, with te technological changes and the way that people are engaging in the markets. That's how you protect investors. So you can't just stay pat. You got to look and see if you're moving with the times. You know, you said that I'm the chair, and I am the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee. The world is smaller than what it used to be. And so therefore, there's different things that you got to do today that you might have done uh, differently 20 years ago. Uh, so we've got to look at these things and try to stay uh, abreast. Well, let's talk about what you want to do today then. Who are you looking forward to questioning? Well, I'm looking to, you know, to talk about uh, whether or not uh, the potential there's any conflicts of interest, whether or not there was any uh, potentially harmful uh, hedge fund practices or, you know, in, as I said, in how social media is on our market and accessibility to public information, uh, that that's important. Uh, the operation of trading apps like Robinhood and the impact on uh, retail investors. Uh, that becomes important. So I want to make and ask some questions in that regard uh, to try to see what those answers are. Uh, when I look at, for example, uh, Robin Hood, you know, whether they had a liquidity problem or not, I know that there was an uh, issue that came up in this past December. And, you know, and, it, and it's important. I mean, I, using Robin Hood as an example, number one, I like uh, what they are trying to do in the sense that they're trying to get people uh, who are the little guys into the market so that they have an opportunity to try to get in the market and, 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 and create wealth for themselves, because I'm for yeah. particularly for, for some to, to try to make sure that we create wealth. Well, but at the same time, I want to make sure they're protected. Congressman, so, uh, forgive me for breaking in. We just have about a minute left. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, some people have said Robin Hood could do their job better if settlement times were shorter. We do live in a technological world. So why should it take three days for uh, basic trades to settle, perhaps two days or one day even? This creates that gap that was the problem for Robin Hood. Do you endorse spending the millions of dollars that would be required to increase settlement times and uh, decrease these gaps? Well, I'm looking at it. I mean, we went from T3 to T2, and some have recommended us that we look at T1. 
uh, we go to, to one day. So that's something that I want to, you know, another area of questioning, uh, another uh, probing that we, we can do. Uh, I'm, my, I'm e my ears are all open. Uh, and uh, so I can make a determination in that regard. Uh, I'm not ruling anything out or anything in. I'm here to learn. And the only way you learn is by asking questions. Let's rule this in. Can we catch up in a couple of days after this hearing? Maybe Monday, no, no. maybe tomorrow. I'd love to do that, Congressman. Thank you. Gregory Meeks there of New York. Thank right. you, sir. Thank you. Looking forward to the hearing. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.